Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about peace building in the media. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. I want to start this episode with a story. In a West African village, a group of men and women are gathered around a bonfire. A woman stands up to tell her story. During the Civil War in Sierra Leone, she was raped by a group of men. One of the rapists was her uncle. She says, this man is here tonight. The man steps forward in front of the fire. He apologizes to the woman. He said he didn't want to do it, but the other men threatened to kill him. He bows and touches her feet. After a moment, she forgives him. Then the two join hands and sing, and the whole group begins to sing and dance. It feels like a dream sequence in a feature film. What I just described is a scene from a documentary film called Fumble Talk, shot in Sierra Leone about a dozen years ago. Fumble Talk means family talk in the local Creole language. My guest today, Libby Hoffman, is one of the producers of the film. Libby is a professional peace builder. She co-founded an organization in Sierra Leone, also called Fumble Talk, that helps facilitate community reconciliation there. Libby has a new book coming out later this month. The answers are there, Building Peace from the Inside Out. It's a personal story about her journey growing the program and shows how the same skills used in the reconciliation process can also be used in development. Libby, thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How did you come to work in Sierra Leone? In 2003, I started a foundation called Catalyst for Peace. And what I decided I wanted to focus on was um, how to create space where the people most impacted by war got to be the ones to lead in the rebuilding after war. To me, it seemed like there was a lot of good work happening in that, but it was isolated and episodic. And I really wanted to use the resources that I had in my foundation to try to live into a way to do this work in mm, that was more strategic, more systemic. And I started working with a documentarian, Sarah Terry, to document some stories of forgiveness and peace in different post-war African settings. And in the course of that work, she met a Sierra Leonean human rights activist, John Cocker, who had led the civil society proportion of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, in Sierra Leone, and then had felt totally frustrated with the lack of real reconciliation in his country. He felt that they had a strong culture and tradition in Sierra Leone, um, in the communities, and it was being totally ignored and bypassed by both the national and the international post-war justice mechanisms. And Sarah called me and said, you won't believe who I just met and connected us. And when we first spoke on the phone, there was such synchronicity in our visions. And he laid out this vision for how you could actually center peace at the community level, organized by the people themselves, drawing on their culture and their tradition. And that was the, the genesis of, of what became Fumble Talk, the program. And because I had this commitment to magnifying the impact of the work through compelling narrative storytelling, I stayed working with Sarah Terry to be documenting the work as it unfolded from the beginning not knowing what we would have really 
in either direction, but knowing that it would be powerful and that the stories would need to be told. It's so great that you did that because you were able to take us inside a process that's hard for many people to really even accept or believe. You made a film about really sensitive topics. You interviewed both victims and perpetrators of atrocities and recorded these ceremonies where participants asked and demanded forgiveness for the deaths of parents and children. What are some of the big takeaways from making the film? Well, I think they interweave with the takeaways from from the program. And I think, first of all, it's important to say that, you know, because I was supporting both the program as it unfolded and the film, it was critically important, and we knew this from the beginning of the filming, that the needs of the community and the needs of the program trumped the film every time. There was no question. We didn't want to enter a community in any way that would be disrespectful, that would be intrusive, that would be causing any problems. And if there were any ways that there was any kind of distrust in the community or any hesitation around the having the cameras there, we, we, we wouldn't go. One of the things that motivated us to make the film and to document the stories in the first place was how we felt that Western media had really been telling the wrong story and in telling the wrong story, reinforcing the problematic dimensions of it. You know, so always going in and looking for that which is sensational, that which is negative, the conflicts, the disease, and not recognizing or magnifying the stories of just the human dimensions and the resources and the the powerful capacities across Africa. Anytime the the Fumble Talk staff entered a new community when the when the film crew was there, they would first ask the community's permission. Every village in Sierra Leone knows the story of Western journalists coming in and just talking about how bad things are, um, how sick people are, how many problems there are, how poor they are, how awful the the war is, and when when John explained that this film crew was here to share with the world. <laughs> the knowledge of Sierra Leone's, the capacity that, that, that they had something to teach the world and the film crew wanted to document and share it. You know, it was amazing. It was the source of pride. And we saw that again and again in the communities where when they found out that somebody was coming to document that they had something to share with the world, to teach the world, it was like they stood up straighter. The other thing that we saw, you know, we were documenting it because we knew these stories would be really powerful for people outside of Sierra Leone. What we found is that they ended up being really powerful for people in Sierra Leone. It was completely unintended, but it served the program development in some really, really powerful ways. Well, for people who aren't familiar with Sierra Leone, can you give us some context about the war that uh, preceded all the work that you did there? Sure. Sierra Leone was engulfed in um, an 11-year civil war. And a lot of people um, in the West, anyway, have some knowledge of it through through the film Blood Diamond, which was set in the Sierra Leone Civil War. And in that war, it was, in some respect, it wasn't necessarily because of diamonds, but Sierra Leone is known in part for its diamonds. And those played a role. Um, it was kind of used by regional powers for um, for the purpose of extracting the, the, the diamond wealth. And that exacerbated the, 
um, the the conflict. But rebel forces first entered um, from the east of Sierra Leone, from Liberia, um, and it it became a very complex process. And it's hard to say that it was um, just rebels versus the the government because there were uh, civilian defense forces and all sorts of international actors and then different people who were, you know, soldiers by day and rebels by night, right? So the nature of the civil war, though, is that people were mobilized. Um, most of the killing happened by neighbors killing neighbors. And after 11 years, over 50,000 people died. A third of the country was displaced. And estimates of about half a million women subject to rape or sexual violence. And tens of thousands of people amputated. Amputation was one of the sort of gruesome tools of war that Sierra Leone became known for. And... When the war ended, they had a special court that was sort of a hybrid national-international special court um, that prosecuted uh, 13 people, 13 people deemed most responsible for the violence. There were nine convictions. And that included Charles Taylor was convicted, the first, um, uh, you know, who, who was the head of Liberia at the time. So for his role in the Sierra Leone Civil War. So $500 million spent on this um, special court. And then they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But the perpetrators also had been given immunity before they testified. So there wasn't an incentive for them. And a lot of perpetrators didn't testify. So it was a very imperfect process. And it left people living next door to somebody who might have amputated their arm or raped their mother in front of them or forced them um, to to do that or burned down their house. Um, And they had never talked about it. And the concept of fumble talk, it's a traditional practice in Sierra Leone, right? So fumble talk is, it's a, it's really an ancient tradition in, in Sierra Leone of solving problems through family conversation around a bonfire. But family is defined in that context very broadly. It's not just biological family, it's really your whole community. And we brought it back, but applied specifically to this post-war reconciliation mm-hmm. context. Right. The other core part of the culture of Sierra Leone they have a culture of forgiveness and they have a culture of community. And their understanding of justice is very different from a Western notion of justice. For them, first of all, when, when you hurt somebody, you don't just hurt them, you hurt the community. And justice isn't about punishing them and separating them. It's actually, you don't have justice until you make the community whole again. That's a Sierra Leonean understanding of justice. And so the special court and even the Truth and Reconciliation Commission didn't operate from that basis of how do you make the community whole again? And their Sierra Leoneans understanding of that means that includes both the victim and the perpetrator. And because these conversations happen in front of the whole community, it's not about one-on-one. It's about doing it in front of the whole community. When somebody comes forward and says what they've done, that's a kind of naming and shaming that is perceived in that culture as incredibly powerful punishment. And 
it is activating this resource of the whole community that then becomes part of of that which is guaranteeing, helping to guarantee that it doesn't happen again, both holding the perpetrator accountable and committing to when, when you when you share that kind of a process in front of the community, the community is committed um, to to the victim as well and to supporting them. Um, it's like it's re-knitting the bonds of the community. And your, your partner in this, uh, John Calker, he said that former combatants can be re- rehabilitated to help the communities they destroyed. Tell us a little bit about John. He's a real visionary. John is a visionary. He, he's a, a human rights advocate. As a student, he started his own stu- human rights organization. And during the Civil War, he would disguise himself as a rebel and infiltrate rebel camps and sit around the bonfire, you know, listening to these guys jaw about what they did um, and then sneak out and call Amnesty International or Article 19 and say, this happened, this happened, you know, and this was how word got out about the war. But he was also really mobilized. Um, He knew the capacity of people and the capacity of community. And he was committed and worked throughout all of his work um, to create the space that allowed people to decide for themselves. And he could walk into a village um, where the physical infrastructure was was destroyed. Um, the the level of poverty, people's clothes would be more holes than clothes. Um, and the the lack of interaction and spark and vitality. And he could see mm. the resources of the people and the community. And he knew, he, even the, he knew it was there and it was latent and he'd experienced it himself. Um, and so he, he had a kind of a vision where he could see potential um, and knew how to work in incredibly trustworthy ways to, to animate that, that potential. He's one of the most single-minded, committed people I've ever, <laughs> I've ever met. Um, with an incredible knowledge of how to build community. No, I mean, he's very tenacious, it's clear, but uh, but he's also very low-key at the same time. I mean, he has a kind of gentleness about him. It's- you know, there's a big man concept of leadership um, in, in Sierra Leone, I think across Africa, and he really flips that. Um, and, you know, his definition of leaders, uh, a leader is the one who creates the most other leaders. Film is really a gift to people who see it to show what's possible in terms of reconciliation. The way you're describing it, it's also a gift to the people who participated in it. Yeah, it is. And that was our goal. You know, there's so much about the experience in Sierra Leone that runs counter to so much of what we're used to in a Western context where we don't have a culture of forgiveness, where we have much more punitive understandings of justice. And when you look at the goal of justice as the wholeness of community, I think it opens up so much more potential. One of the things that we saw repeatedly in all of these bonfire ceremonies in Sierra Leone is that oftentimes it was the perpetrators that were most eager to testify and they came forward first. And yes, they wanted to get it off off their chest. But one of the phrases that we heard from a from an ex-combatant was he wanted to be a good somebody. 
And he could only be a good somebody if he was a contributing member of the community. And so the community of itself, the community itself is, it's like a living organism. It's a presence. It's a power in that context. And being a part of that community, you know, they would say, basically, you are nothing without your community. It is central to your individual identity. And the individual and the communal weave together in all of these ways that make these kinds of experiences doable. When we showed the film to Western audiences, people are incredulous, oftentimes at the stories of forgiveness. And I get it. This was one of the things that we wanted to, the kinds of conversations we wanted to help raise. Uh, you know, how could they do that? How could they do that? And one time when we had staff from Sierra Leone over here um, for some screenings, <laughs> when they heard people stand up and, and express those things, they stirred up like... And had the same level of disbelief at what they were hearing from these Americans. Like they were like, well, how could you not? How, how, like they literally could not comprehend that you could not forgive somebody because they knew from their context that you, you couldn't move on unless you did. So it's just that complete different perspective that when we encounter it in lived example, it's so um, challenging and thought provoking. When we finished the production, we made a Creo voiceover version of it, and and that was broadcast regularly on Sierra Leone TV, so that even the people from places who weren't able to have a Fonbol Talk bonfire were getting to to see the reawakening of their own culture and their tradition, and to participate in it, and to have that reflected back to them about the transformational potential of their culture. Yeah, I mean, so many Western filmmakers make documentaries in countries like Sierra Leone, but those films never get seen by Sierra Leoneans or by the people that were featured in the film. Well, one thing, it did support sharing from village to village sometimes. Like there was a huge amount of distrust of Fumble Talk at the beginning because there was fear that it was connected to the special court. And people thought that if they testified, they would be prosecuted. And so we had film clips of people who had then participated in a fumble talk process and sharing about how they saw now that this was something completely different. And we were actually able to share those film clips in other villages as part of the sort of community sensitization process. And so like, that's just one small example. Um, another, I think, huge example Captain Muhammad Savage was um, one of the most notorious rebel commanders during the war. And one of the places in the Kono district where he did a lot of his atrocities. And there was a pond named after him, Savage Pit, where he was supposedly dumped all of his bodies. Anyway, that that village uh, or that area was conducting a, uh, they were doing a fumble talk bonfire. The film crew ended up meeting with him. He denied who he was. But then, the crew showed Muhammad Savage an interview they had done with the sister of an ex-combatant who was under his command. In the video, the woman said she had accepted forgiveness on her brother's behalf from the families of villagers he had killed, and she invited him to come home. It had quite an impact on Savage. And he transformed from seeing it. And the next day he called John and the film crew back and said, I am the Muhammad Savage. I want to go back. I want to reconcile. Um, and that was its own process. And later on, 
Muhammad Savage led workshops with other ex-combatants, showing the film that featured him and his story and encouraging them to participate in reconciliation process. So it was like this magnifying, yeah, this spiral of, of impact and just the capacity to magnify transformation. Yeah, and film was, in a sense, the catalyst for it in, yep. some, in some important ways. Yeah, it was like the electrical wires that, the, that it moved through. Mm-hmm. You know what, I, one thing I f- think is remarkable is the, uh, you know, I saw the film of the sixth grade children in Philadelphia mm. um, applying Fumbletuck, you know, the process, you know, in their own uh, conflicts. And th- that was amazing. Yeah, I, I, I think kids get it. And classrooms are perfect settings, I think, in particular for for Americans anyway, to understand community, right? Because you're with these people in mostly small groups, like all day, every day, virtually. It's a way we experience community in, in the, the daily life that, that makes it ripe for, you know, when there's a violation of a community it affects everybody. When there's a breakdown of trust, it affects everybody uh, and everybody's learning. And consequently, when you address that, it, it affects everybody and it can be um, transformative f- for everybody. It astonished me. You know, when I gave a presentation to this sixth grade class, one of my favorite comments was a young boy who said, you know, he sat there silently after my presentation. And they said, you know, I was taught that in Africa, they had nothing. They just had disease and poverty. And, and he said, but now I think we have nothing and they have the wealth because they have community. <laughs> that's, a, that's a remarkable realization, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and this particular class had been plagued by distrust that had hurt their community all year. And so the next day after my presentation, when they came in, the teacher sat them in a circle and it actually was prompted by students when they had been out on a field trip and things had gotten out of hand and one of the students had hit an, another student. And instead of running to the teachers, um, they just said, let's sit down and have our own fumble talk. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's an amazing story. Yeah, it's a great story. I mean, these yeah. ideas have resonance. Libby, if you can break down the process a little bit more, what the fumble talk process actually is, what are the steps? Well, it begins, first of all, Fumbletalk has worked at the district level and the district is like the state um, level. And when they, they first enter a district and bring together the leaders from the district and say, do you want us to work here? We'd like to work here. And then they identify a group of volunteers to run the the process in the district and, and a couple staff from that district um, that will be the leaders in, in coordinating it. And then they decide where to start. Once they identify the places where they're going to work, the staff goes and it's a two to three month process to walk the community through identifying that they have them identify who in their community are the trusted, um, basically the, the, the wise people. They don't have to be elders because people are trusted in all different ways, but who they are and they help to train them to be prepared to hold some of the difficult conflicts that might, um, that might arise and then to lead the planning process for planning their, their reconciliation. And then that culminates in the bonfire ceremony itself, which is a two-day process. 
And the first day, everybody gathers around the bonfire, and one of the um, one of the village elders will invite everybody and explain. You know, this is not a prosecutorial process. You 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 won't be processed. We want you to basically offload your your burdens, tell your stories. What happened to you? What did you do? This is a safe space for it, and invite anybody who want to to come forward. And then people will come forward around the bonfire and testify either what happened to them or what they did if the person is there. Um, Because oftentimes these atrocities in a civil war like this were perpetrated by neighbors who were recruited um, by the rebels or one of the military groups. And so they still lived next door to each other and had never talked about what happened. So oftentimes the other person was there and they came forward and they asked um, if, you know, they would ask for forgiveness or, or offer for forgiveness or apologize. And when you're apologizing, there's a deep bow that has a cultural, you, you mentioned it in, in the opening, Jamil, cultural significance. And if you accept their apology, you um, tap them on the back. And then typically they would dance together. And after everybody who who wanted to testify testified, everybody danced. The community was celebrating. I know it's 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 uh, it's almost poetic the way it all works out. Yeah, and uh, it's really quite remarkable. The second day is the cleansing ceremony. Oftentimes they would draw on their culture, their tradition. They would have they would go around as a community and cleanse the areas where there were mass graves or where there had been um, a massacre or where something had a violation had happened or the people that had testified, they would receive the cleansing. And then they had a feast. And then the, the groups that had been organized to prepare for the bonfire, they carried on and had a whole long months of follow-up activities because the bonfire was, it wasn't the end of it. It was the beginning. Right. And that's a very important uh, concept in a sense. I mean, with peace in general, people think that, you know, you sign a treaty and that, you know, everything should supposed to be right the next day. <laughs> but it's not. It's just the beginning of a process. Exactly. And in, in the Sierra Leonean context, forgiveness, it's not about something being over. It's about reclaiming the commitment to go forward together. And the communities designated a peace tree. And that was where they would gather if there was any new conflict that arose and bring in the reconciliation committee. And so if there was something that came up, they would go there and work together to solve it with the community members themselves being the resources from for the process. They took on all of these collective community projects like community farms um, or soccer matches where you would have victims and perpetrators working side by side. And prior to this process, if there had been a community of activity and I knew the person who had hurt me in the war was going, I wouldn't go. And so it was like the communities were silently divided. Um, and now these normal, these times to just normalize the relationships and work through the, the ongoing challenges that arose, it was healing for the individuals, but it was really the process that healed the communities. Mm-hmm. Well, and now you have a book coming out. The answers are there. And I love where the, well, I love the writing in the book, by the way, but I also Thank love, you. I love where the book began with that warm inv- invitation to look at this decade of work, peace building and development, and look, look at it deeply and thoughtfully as you, as you do in the book. 
What made you want to write the book? Well, I think it's a continuation of this sort of original impulse of how do we magnify the good um, and unleash the potential that's there. I, you know, I've seen it over and over in Sierra Leone. I've seen it enough in my own life. And as the Fumble Talk program grew, and then when the Ebola crisis came in, in Sierra Leone, the international response to Ebola, it was repeating some of the biggest problems from the post-war funding of a massive influx of outside aid, most of it short-term, hardly any of it reaching the communities themselves, and being done in a way which was just further fracturing the communities and creating more distrust. And we adapted the Fumble Talk program after Ebola to be a people's-led recovery first process, but then planning and development process, and then started advocating for and working with the government um, who realized that th this was exactly what they wanted to do with their local governance and, um, and development process and adopted it as a national policy framework called the One Fumble National Framework. And so for the last several years, we've been working with the government on how to roll out this process that centers the people in the communities and builds from there in a way that culminates in a national process that's truly from the inside out. And the piece of this that I was especially interested in, I mean, I, I think the stories of what Fumble Talk has done at the local level are, are phenomenal. We've committed a lot to sharing them be, between the, the film and the book and all of the other documentation work that we've done. But what I hadn't shared yet was really about the process, how to work this way. And that's what this book does. And that's what I love about it. I mean, it takes you inside the work and the process and it shows that, you know, you really listen to people that you were working with, you trusted them, and then you facilitated in helping them achieve their own goals. People want to contribute. They want to be a part of making their community better. I think that is the fundamental impulse of us as humans. And Fumble Talk and the whole inside out approach is built on that assumption. And that if you in, if you see people's potential and you invite it forward and you support it, um, so much is possible. And really, that's the essence of, of the program is seeing the potential and inviting it into action and supporting it and linking it and magnifying it. That's building peace from the inside out. You know, uh, <laughs> this has been a wonderful conversation and it could go on for a long time because there's so many insights that we can learn from this. And uh, But all, thing, all good things come to an end, but I think this is a great way to end it. I'm very grateful for your willingness to talk about this very unique um, event and there's a lot to learn from this. Uh, I think so. I mean, I still learn from it every day, but I just want to thank you too, um, Jamil, I feel like your commitment to making that which isn't visible visible um, <laughs> is, is is part of that same that same impulse. And so um, I'm oh, it I'm is. Grateful. I, I think we discovered when we first met a bunch of years ago uh, that we both were interested in in making things making this process visible to people. So it's great that we're able to get away with continuing. <laughs> yeah. No. Thank you. Thank you for making the space for yeah. for me to share. Libby Hoffman's book is called The Answers Are There, Building Peace from the Inside Out. You can read a preview at LibbyHoffman.com. 
It's available October 25th, 2022, wherever books are sold. Fumble Talk is the latest film in our Peace Talk series. Peace Docs is a curated series of documentaries about peacebuilding launched by the War Stories, Peace Stories project. To watch the film online, go to warstoriespeacestories.org and click the link at the top of the page that says Film Series. We also have links to Libby's book and the film's website in the show notes. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrew Moraskin. We had production help on this episode from Faith McClure. Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories project. And I'm Jamil Simon. In between episodes, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at War Stories Peace and visit our website, warstoriespeacestories.org, to learn more about our work in peacebuilding and the media. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe in your podcast app. There you can get our next episode as soon as it comes out and find all of our past episodes too. Thanks for listening and talk soon.